Okay, so thank you very much, Ratnagana. So, yeah, this evening I'm going to talk about what would the Buddha do if he were alive just now? Well, at least an aspect of that, because who knows really what the Buddha would do if he was alive now. But, um, of course, we live in a very different world from the world that Shakyamuni Buddha lived in, Gautama the Buddha lived in. I believe you had a talk about the historical Buddha last week from Vishwapani, which I'm sure would have been a really good talk. So again, Vishwapani gives really good talks. So uh, I don't know what aspects he covered, but um, if you think about it, the world that the Buddha actually inhabited and walked about in was very, very different from the world that we inhabit and walk about in. Not only have 2,500 years or more past, but actually, you know, the Buddha lived in the Iron Age. He lived in an agrarian society, a rural society, very small tribal kind of society. We live in a postmodern, post-industrial, technological world. We live in a global village. The consequences of our actions seem to be very different from the consequences of an action in the time of the Buddha. At least the scale, the amount, the scale that we can actually act upon is pretty massive when you think of it. We can do actions that have extraordinary ripple effects throughout the entire globe, throughout the entire planet. The consequences of actions are very different. And um, I read a book a while ago called, I can't remember what it was called, it was something like, oh, I can't remember. But anyway, I read a lot of books. But what this guy talked about was how he thinks the world changed with Hiroshima. He thinks a fissure happened in the psyche of modern man and woman when the bomb was dropped in Hiroshima. Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, and the reason why he believes this is he thinks that fear entered the human psyche in a different way that up until that point um, there, really, there wasn't fear of complete annihilation of the whole species in a way that then became an actual possibility after that so not only an actual theoretical possibility but a possibility that had been proven that you know could could actually happen, and looking around, I think probably some of you are of my generation, and grew up in a world where that was quite a present um, danger, if you like. I grew up in the age of the Cold War. Grew up when actually it was quite a serious, seemingly serious threat. I grew up in a family where my father was very involved in CND, and one of my earliest march, my earliest memories is going in the Elder Master March when I would have been about six or something. So I come from a background where that was very present and very kind of conscious. So we, we, we live in a world where the kind of issues or the questions that we tackle are seemingly very different from the issues that the Buddha seemed to have to tackle. When you read the Pali Canon, the, the, you don't get the, quite the impression of people grappling with quite such massive issues in quite such a, a massive way. But actually, when you think about it, sangsara is still exactly the same. So greed, hatred and delusion still march. Greed, hatred and delusion still occupy a massive place in the world that we live in. And that really is what the Buddha was talking about, greed, hatred and delusion. So what he called the root poisons are still the same root poisons. In a sense, the human psyche isn't that different. The problems, the issues that we get ourselves caught up in at root aren't actually that different. They're, um, 
the, the, uh, the fountain that they spring from, if you like, is still greed, hatred and delusion. But you could argue that in the 20th and 21st century, those poisons have become institutionalised. So I'm drawn to some extent on work of a, a Buddhist activist and scholar called David Loy, who some of you have probably come across. I noticed there's a group going on at the same time tonight. Uh, I, had, I was having a look at the programme. You know when you go and visit a Buddhist centre? I like to know what's going on. You know, sort of wonder what the competition is, that sort of thing. And I noticed that, Na, is it Nagapriya is doing a group called Sex, Karma, Money, War, which is a great title. It's actually the title of David Loy's latest book. So I imagine that's what that study group's based on. So um, I just thought that was quite interesting because some of the stuff that I'm talking about draw a bit on inspiration from, from him as a thinker. So that's interesting that there's two things kind of going on in the Buddhist centre at the same time. So, so thank you for coming to this. So I won't actually mention greed, I won't actually mention war, I will mention war, poverty and some other things, but probably not sex, which is, you know, the, maybe the more interesting of the, the four of them that he's offering. So there's still time. Anyway, you could argue that greed, hatred and delusion now take institutionalised forms or even global forms. That they're not just the kind of work of an individual. Of course, we can individually be motivated, are motivated by, are driven by greed, hatred and delusion. But these seem to now have quite institutionalised forms. A couple of years ago, a few years ago, I was thinking about this actually. I hadn't come across that particular phrase, but I was just thinking how how so much of what's happening in the world when you really start to unpick it just basically comes back to great hatred and delusion. I thought, goodness, the Buddha had something there, didn't he? You know, it really does, if you just unpick a lot of the things that are happening, you know, pick anything that's happening on the planet at the moment. Terrorism, the war on terrorism, you know, the kind of poverty, the scale of poverty that there is. Anything really that's happening in the world, if you unpick it, and unravel it, you will end up at greed, hatred or delusion or some unholy matrimony of two or some triangle of the three. So they, they have global forms now. And the 20th century, which we can look back on, and some of us lived through quite a bit of it, uh, which is amazing, isn't it amazing to be able to look back at a century and think, I, I, I saw half of that. I think that's extraordinary. Basically, I'm just getting old. But I'm still quite excited by it. Um, and also, I suppose it was a century where we monitored ourselves and we recorded ourselves in a way that wasn't really done with such fair, such kind of fervour beforehand. It was the media century, wasn't it, really, the 20th century? So we have a sense of knowing what it was like. You know, whether it's a true sense, I suppose, is another question. But we do have a sense of being able to look at history in a way that our antecedents couldn't quite do. And the 20th century, somebody, I can't remember who, said that the 20th century, everything got better and better and worse and worse, faster and faster than ever before. And I think that's probably quite a good um, epitaph for the, the 20th century. Amazing kind of um, advances in medicine and science and technology. Extraordinary advances that made life so much better for some people. And extraordinarily awful things happening that made life a lot worse for quite a lot of people. So I'll just give you some, fact, some facts and figures. We're just a particular angle on it. It was the bloodiest century in history, 
as far as we know. Uh, Lenin actually, just by the way, predicted this. That's not John Lenin, but Vladimir Lenin did actually predict that it was the only inevitable, st- it was an inevitable stage of capitalism, that that century would be the bloodiest in history. He also, uh, I'm an old communist, I'm sorry. He also predicted that capitalism would find its downfall in the first decade of the, the, uh, this century. There you go. You never know. Um, but there were 187 million people were killed in wars, as far as we know, in the 20th century. Probably more. That was what was recorded. Can you get your head around that? 187 million people. But one of the interesting, th- well, interesting, one of the horrible, awful things is that the, it had the highest percentage of civilian uh, collateral damage of any other century. Before that, we had people that fought our wars for us. But through the, the 20th century, in the, in the First World War, a fifth of the casualties were civilian. In the Second World War, two-thirds of the casualties were civilian. In the 20th century, that's nine years, 90% of deaths at war have been civilian. 90%. It's, that's a whole, it's a change. It's a change in society. It's a change in the way life is, if you see what I mean. Anyway, we, we need an ethics that can combat that scale of things. Another little fact in terms of poverty. In 1996, the UN Development Report said that the world had 358 billionaires 358 people on the planet of how many billion? 15 billion? So 385 people, that's not very many people, who are all billionaires. And they're wealthier, each and every one of them is wealthier, see if you can get your head around this, than the combined annual income of the countries in which 45% of the world's population live. Right? So 45% of the world's population, almost a half of the world's population, live in countries, the combined annual income of which is less than any one of these 358 people own. It's not right, is it? It's not right. So we need an ethics that can combat that. That's extraordinary. Anyway, when I was very small... I, I remember, I was probably about eight or something, I heard that 7% of the population owned 84% of the wealth, and I wrote to the Prime Minister. Because <laughs> it just struck me that he must not know. Because actually, if you knew that, you'd have to do something about it, wouldn't you? Anyway, I never got an answer, which probably put me off politics. Anyway, so we need an ethics that can deal with the scale of those sort of issues. You know, and they're really big things, but even just chunking it down to the kind of things that happen in our, you know, in our own kind of spheres, if you like, we do see more, uh, I think we probably see more poverty, we probably see more suffering than perhaps uh, other generations have, in a certain way, because of course that's not true in other ways. Anyway, so can we look to Buddhism and find a principle in this that might help us work our way through the kind of quagmire of the kind of issues that we're up against. You know, and there are all sorts of issues. How do we as individuals actually deal with things like world poverty? I mean, do we or do we just not bother? Because it's so big. 
you know, how do we as individuals deal with the fact that the planet has actually been raped and pillaged by a very small number of people? Uh, you know, how do we deal with that? Do we deal with it or do we just not bother because it's too big? And yet, because we do live in a global village, everything that we do will impact on those issues. So although they seem very large issues, where we buy our clothes, the coffee that we buy, all those different small, seemingly personal choices actually impact in the world in a way that perhaps personal choices have never quite impacted before. So I'm going to argue that, in fact, Buddhist ethics can give us a way to work through this kind of quagmire, if you like, because the underlying principle of Buddhist ethics is a principle of non-violence. So I'm going to talk a bit about Buddhist ethics. So Buddhist ethics are what's known as a virtue ethics. They're mind-based. So there's, within Western philosophy, there's a whole series of uh, philosophical approaches to ethics, Buddhism doesn't have that. Buddhism has praxis rather than theory when it comes to ethics. What Buddhism offers is opportunities to live in a particular way. It offers lifestyle choices, if you like. It offers practical um, things in that actions of consequences is very, very practical. So it's no, there's a whole series of ways of looking at ethics. Buddhist ethics, the closest that it comes to in Western terms is virtue ethics which is Aristotelian ethics, so that the closest it comes to is we think of a virtue that we would like to develop and we act in a way that would make more of that virtue in our lives. So if I wish to be a kind and compassionate person, I'll act in ways that are the ways that a kind and compassionate person would act. The theory then being that that kind and compassionate action will impact on my psyche and the result will be that I will truly become a kinder and more compassionate person. And that's the basis of Buddhist ethics. They're mind-based ethics. So skillful actions come from skillful states of mind. Unskillful actions come from greed, hatred and delusion. And there are many bastard offsprings. So, uh, I mean, um, this is Buddhism 101. I, p- I apologise if this is all very obvious. But I'd like to look at those ethics in slightly different ways. You can look at Buddhist ethics. I I was reading a book called um, Engaged Spiritual Practice quite recently, which I think was was written by somebody called Rothman, I think. I think it was Rothman. Anyway, he talks about how we can look at the precepts (laughs) and we can look at ethical practice in three spheres of influence. So there's the individual sphere of influence. There's something more relational. And then there's something collective. So you can also think of that as that there's the effect that any given action has on the agent of the action. So I <coughs> act in a way that's kind, that has an effect on me. I act in a way that's unkind, it has an effect on me. So there's the individual effect, the agent is affected by the action. But of course it also has an effect in the immediate sphere that I'm part of. <coughs> So if I'm a kind and compassionate person, I use that in particular because I'd quite like to be a kind and compassionate person. It's one of those things I'd like to be. So if I were a kind and compassionate person, then within my relationships, whether they're friends, family, whatever, I will create an, an ambience, bless you, an ambience of kindness and compassion. But also, he argues, you can think of it in a more global sense. So my kind and compassionate actions might be only very small, but they might, in fact, have a global impact. 
So he's suggesting, and I would suggest that we can think of our actions in those three spheres. What is this action? What effect is it having on me as a being, as a practitioner? What effect is it having on my particular psyche to act in this way? What effect does it have in my relational kind of sphere of influence? You know, does it mean I'm somebody that people are going to seek out because they'd like to be with because I'm kind and compassionate? Or am I somebody that when they see me come and they cross the road? You know, and what kind of ambience am I creating in the spheres that I'm involved in, whether it's um, work or play or, you know, home or any of those kind of spheres? But also, if we stretch you know, push the envelope a bit, we stretch our imagination a bit and really start to take in what effect our actions have in a more global sense, then small things do have a big effect. Slightly, uh, just come into my mind, apparently Mother Teresa of Calcutta said, people tell me my actions are a drop in the ocean and I say the ocean is made up of drops. So small things can have a really big effect and I think it's, it's important to remember that. So the precepts themselves, and I'm talking the five precepts or the ten precepts that we follow within the order, or the 300 and however many precepts it is that the monastic sangha follow in other movements and other groups. All of those precepts can be thought of in that sense. So if we think of the, the, just the five precepts that I'm sure we all know, you know, to, we cease to do harm and act with deeds of loving kindness. Well, of course that has an effect on our psyche. Of course it has an effect on those around us. Actually, of course, it has an effect in a global sense. And so on through the different precepts. I'll come back to that if I have time. Anyway, I thought, so I've said, what would the Buddha do now? But first of all, we could have a look at what the Buddha actually said and then extrapolate a bit from that. So I've got a couple of suttas that I wanted to share with you about things that the Buddha said that I think might be of relevance and have an impact on us. So in terms of, there's just a very small thing I wanted to, to share with you, which is from the Bahitika Sutta, from the Majjhima Nikaya. So this is a sutra in which the Buddha and his, there's various, I've read different versions of this, but basically the Buddha and some of his disciples are accused of rape and murder. Uh, that's the worst version. There's a slightly less bad version where it's just rape. But anyway, it's not very good, particularly for a monastic sangha. So some somebody in the local area uh, accuses the Buddha of uh, taking this... I think she was a prostitute called Sun... Sun something. Not Sue, as in, you know, Sue Smith, but Sunata or something like that. Anyway, I can't remember quite what it is. Can you remember? Something like that. Anyway, he's accused of that. And there's a whole kind of story of the way the Buddha tells his monks to respond to these accusations, which is basically not getting that involved in them. But at some point, he's actually asked about what is ethical. And uh, he just says something very, very simple. He says, an unwholesome deed involves affliction or harm to oneself, to others, or to both. And this keeps getting repeated through the sutra. It's incredibly straightforward, an unwholesome act is when it inflicts harm upon the self, upon other, or upon both. So I just think that's such an easy quote to remember. And in a way, it's quite... If we just measure our actions against that, am I doing harm? Is this so obvious that I'd be better off not bothering saying it? 
And yet, actually, sometimes those things that are so obvious are just quite good to highlight. Anyway, I wanted to have a look at a couple of other sutras, which are a bit more social. So where the Buddha actually gives uh, a sense of a kind of social context. So there's a sutra which deals with dependent origination. I'm going to come back to dependent origination. Um, so he talks, there's a sutra called the Mahanidana Sutra. And in that, the Buddha explains the principle of conditionality. So that's the principle that this being that becomes, with the arising of this that arises. This not being that does not become, with the ceasing of this that ceases. So the very, very basic Buddhist principle of conditionality Independence upon A arises B. If A ceases to be, B ceases to be. So the law of dependent origination. So we'll come back to that because I want to explore that a little bit. But he's talking about this law of conditionality, in other words, that cause and effect. But he's talking about it in a social context. So this dependent origination describes the arising of social ills along the same lines as the arising of personal suffering. So I'm sure you're familiar with the outer rim of the wheel of life, which are the 12 nidanas of conditioned existence. Are people familiar with that? Yeah, you know, the the basic principle in dependence upon, um, you know, what's it arises, the other one. (laughs) I'm having a senior moment. I do know them. Anyway, when you get to craving, so you have independence upon um, feeling arises craving, independence upon craving arises clinging. So that's in a kind of personal sense. But the social one takes you from craving into a description of external events. I think this is very interesting. So I'm going to just read that to you. So the Buddha saying, In this way, Ananda, conditioned by feeling is craving. Conditioned by craving is seeking. Conditioned by seeking is gain. Conditioned by gain is valuation. Conditioned by valuation is fondness. Conditioned by fondness is possessiveness. Conditioned by possessiveness is ownership. Conditioned by ownership is avarice, guarding, and resulting from guarding are the taking up of the stick, the knife, contention, dispute, Arguments, abuse, slander, and lying. So it's a very amazingly accurate description of social ill, it seems to me. Uh, So the Buddha's saying that as soon as you bring in ownership in a certain way, then you lay yourself open to all these other possibilities. So conditioned by the desire to guard what we own, Arise, avarice, uh, and then arise the stick, the knife, contention, dispute, etc. And there's another sutta, there's another couple of suttas where the Buddha talks about similar things. Um, So there's the Aganya Sutta. I really like this one. This is the one that's sometimes called the Rice Sutta. So apparently, in early days, that the Buddha's talking about. And I don't know whether this is literal or it's a, the Buddha telling a story, but he says, originally, nobody owned rice. Rice was just grown 
you just harvested the rice you needed, you put it in your pot, you cooked it, you had your dinner, and that was it. There was no need to worry about it. There was always abundant rice. However, some people became lazy and began to hoard their rice so that they wouldn't have to go out into the field to get their rice on a regular basis. They started to hoard it. And then, because they started to hoard it, it became private and owned. So unscrupulous people began to steal other people's hoards of rice to enlarge their own hoard of rice, which meant that there wasn't enough rice for some other people. So those people that didn't have enough began to steal the rice from the people that had too much rice. And so on and so forth, until censure, lying, punishment and contention arose. So this whole sutra is basically saying the cause of stealing and all those other things comes from private ownership. That's what the Buddha said. So it's, I just found that really interesting when I read it, that, you know, and I'm not making a case for other economic systems, although I think a good case ought to be made for other economic systems. And I think maybe we're reaching an age, where, a time where maybe people will listen to arguments about alternative economic systems. But more just that whole law of conditionality and how, how often do we actually analyse social problems by looking back at their source? We often don't. And certainly our world leaders don't, I would argue. There's an, in, in another sutra, uh, the Ch- Chakavati Sutta, the Buddha says, The ruler did not share his wealth amongst the poor, so poverty abounded, theft abounds, the use of weapons abound, killing and maiming abound. And he goes on and he goes on and he goes on. But one of the interesting things is that in one of these suttas, you, there's a little bit that says, Some of the people became disillusioned with society decided to do away with evil action and cultivated skillful meditation practice. So I think this is really interesting. Some people saw through it and actually made a stance in a way. They didn't get caught up in that. And this was something I was thinking about quite recently of practitioners' foresight. You know the foresights that the Buddha saw before he became, when he went off to be a Buddha, when he went off to seek enlightenment? He saw a, um, an ill man, a, a dying person, sick, old age, sickness and death, he saw. But he also saw the fourth sight. He saw a travelling mendicant. He saw somebody who had dedicated themselves to the spiritual life. And I do think it's incredibly important that those of us who feel we've made a commitment to leading a spiritual life are out and proud about it. Because I think society needs spiritual practitioners, actually, at the moment. And uh, I have a lot of friends who are monastics and other Buddhist organisations. And every now and again, I have a little flirtation with the idea that I'd quite like to be a Tibetan nun. And I'm not going to be a Tibetan nun. I'm very happy in the Western Buddhist order. I'm very dedicated to the Western Buddhist order. But I quite fancy the robes and uh, the kind of outfit and that. But one of the reasons why I do quite fancy it, actually, is because I think it gives an external message. And actually, I think the message it gives is a very mixed and can be a bit complicated as a message. But I do think it's one of the reasons why I use my Buddhist name everywhere, for example. I think, well, at least if I'm not visible, I can be audible. You know, I can at least 
make sure that people know that I'm practicing in a particular way. Because I do think the world is really, ne- you know, really open to and needs alternatives at the moment. You know, I think that's more and more the case. So, you know, I'm not suggesting proselytising or preaching or, you know, every time anybody says, hi, what's your name, you give them a lecture in the Eightfold Path. But nevertheless, just to be quite out that we do have an alternative way of living. We do actually have values that we are quite, you know, we're proud of in a way. And values that I think are the values that the world needs. Anyway, that was just a little by the by about the fourth sight. Oh dear. So, um, <laughs> all of this is going back to the first basic teaching of the Buddha, that actions have consequences, and that can be seen as an individual thing, a relational thing, and a collective thing. So we need a principle that can overcome these, um, these problems, these issues. I've spoken of some of them. I'm sure we can, they are legion, are they not? You know, if we think of things like war, terrorism, poverty, we can see that they're the consequence of greed, hatred and delusion. Another way of thinking of that is we can see them as the consequence of ego imposition, which is, again, the basics, what the Buddha taught. We impose our ego. The problems of our own world comes from our mistaken belief that we have a separate self. Uh, David Loy, who I mentioned, also talks about this in terms of nation states and corporations, and he calls it the we go rather than the ego. So it's like it's bigger than just me and my ego. It's the kind of institutionalized, uh, empowered ego that comes from that kind of mass identity, which is quite a, a scary thought, really. Uh, anyway, but the, the imposition of ego comes from the mistake. Sangharach calls the ego a great big mistake. He says, we just made a big mistake. It's not something to worry about excessively. It's just a mistake. So I'll come to look at that in a little minute. So in a way, what we need is a principle that helps us to see through the ego and to overcome our innate desire to impose our ego whether that's our individual ego or our collect, the collective egos that we participate in. Yeah? So a principle that would actually help us to see through the ego and cease to impose it. And another way of thinking of that, so there's a whole, uh, well, there's all sorts of things we could say about that, but we need a principle that, would, that helps us to overcome the sense of the separate self. So looking at that from another point of view, there is the principle of interconnectedness. And I want to talk about that because I think interconnectedness has become a bit of a buzzword, actually. And I, I fear it has even become slightly sentimentalised. I've, uh, I've been quite interested just how often you hear it. And I was driving, I drove some people to the station this morning from Taraloka to the local station. And I put the radio phone on in the way back, nine o'clock this morning. And I was thinking uh, about this talk and I was thinking about interconnectedness and kindness and compassion. Did anybody hear Radio 4 this morning at eight, 9 o'clock? Well, there was a programme about kindness and compassion. It was... Uh, sorry? If you brought kindness, it's much more basic than human being. Yeah. So he was being interviewed by Andrew Ma. And uh, it, was just, it was just really interesting. There it was. You know, they were talking about kindness. and You know, it's, that's a natural human... Uh, you know, quality, but it gets knocked out of us by the competitiveness of our society. And I thought, 
could just tape it and bring it in, you know. But then, uh, and then he started talking about interconnectedness, and I thought, yes, here we are, you know, interconnectedness, it's everywhere. And actually, I think we've got very used to thinking in those terms, but it's actually relatively recent in that kind of a sense. I think it has become a bit of a buzzword, which is great. I think that's great. Get it out there, I say. But I sometimes wondered if it hasn't become a little bit of a feel-good. You know, it's a little bit like the kind of bend it like Beckham of movies. You know, it's a sort of feel-good. It's like, you know, you, there's a wee... Yeah, you know what I mean. So anyway, I, I just thought I'd talk a little bit about interconnectedness because I think it's such a radical idea. It's a radical principle. It's a radical, you know... Um, way of trying to condition ourselves to see the world, if you like. A radical way of opening our eyes in a slightly different way. And I think it, it is a little bit, as I say, in danger of actually uh, being sentimentalised. I think what it can sometimes sound like is just a great fusion of something. So we're all interconnected. But what does that actually mean in real terms? So I want you to look at that very quickly, oh my God. Ratnagiri did say I could only have 40 minutes. But we started late. So, um, I went to look at interconnectedness metaphysically, emotionally and ethically. Very briefly. So metaphysically, I went to look at what is it that is meant in Buddhist terms. In terms of Buddhist philosophy, where does interconnectedness come from? Well, it comes from shunyata. It comes from emptiness, if you like. So I want to just explore that a bit. I'm not sure how familiar people are with that concept of shunyata, but it's always worth it, you know, going into it a bit, isn't it? So the word shunyata crops up a lot in Buddhism, and we hear it, it's often translated as the void, emptiness. What does that mean, really? So where it actually comes from is this teaching of Patija Samudpada. It's this teaching of conditionality. So the Buddha taught that in everything arises in dependence upon conditions. So as I said before, in dependence upon A arises B, where the cessation of A, B ceases to, to exist. But that's far too linear, because really every single phenomenon arises in dependence of an enormous complex of conditions that come together. So let me give you a very quick example. A leaf on a tree very common example, traditional example. If you think of a leaf, you can immediately get a sense of what a leaf is. But if we really think about that leaf, it has certain attributes. It starts its life as a closed-up bud. It opens. Uh, time passes. The conditions change. It goes from being white to being green to being gold to being brown. It goes from being tightly rolled up to being open it goes from being smooth to being crinkly it goes from having a particular weight to a different weight its weight changes, everything changes and that is what that leaf is, is demonstrating, that everything changes that only that there is nothing inherent within that leaf that remains the same there is nothing of leafness within the leaf except its changing attributes so what the Buddha said was, well, all phenomena are impermanent. We can see that very easily. A, a, a leaf arises, a leaf falls, literally. A leaf ceases to exist when the conditions are such. But the Buddha said more than that. He said, within that leaf, there is no substance of leaf that remains unchanged. There are all the conditions that go together to create that leaf during its transient spell of existence. 
And that is true for us and it's true for all phenomena from the tiniest atomic, subatomic level to the hugest universal and cosmic level. Everything in the conditioned world, according to the Buddha's analysis, arises in dependence upon conditions, changes as those conditions change, and ceases to exist as the conditions cease. So what that means is that there's nothing within that leaf that can originate independently. There is nothing within you, I'm sorry, that arose independently. You know, there's no phenomenon that arises independently of other phenomena. What that means is that all phenomena are interconnected. So it actually has a very strong philosophical root, this idea of interconnectedness. What that's meaning is that you, me, us, the Manchester Buddhist Centre, Manchester, this nation, everything, are part of... It's a whole series of conditions arising and falling. Arising and falling in milliseconds. Changing. Some things change rather more slowly than others. Think of your mental states. You know, how often do you waken up in one particular mood and it takes very little for you to suddenly be in another mood? You know, I can get myself in a real tiz about something and then I look back and think, what on earth was that all about? It's like that state arose in dependence upon conditions... The conditions changed and the state disappears as though it never existed. Countries arise and fall. Civilizations arise and fall. They all arise and depend upon conditions. And with the cessation of those conditions, they cease to exist. So what that says is that everything is interdependent or interconnected. There is no separate ego. It's a big mistake. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't exist. It doesn't mean, it's not nihilistic. It doesn't mean that it's, because of course you exist. If I come and hit you, you will feel it and you will undoubtedly hit me back. And I will undoubtedly feel that. So to that extent, we exist. Of course we exist. The Buddhist analysis does not say that we don't exist. The void, emptiness, shunyata isn't saying that we don't exist. It's saying we make a mistake about how we exist. We think we exist in an absolute sense where we actually exist in a relative sense. We exist in the sense that we, the conditions come together and the conditions cease. But we fix the moment. We try to pull towards ourselves what holds that in place and we push away anything that threats. And that also happens on an individual scale, on a national scale, on a global scale. You know, we try to shore up what makes us feel safe <coughs> And we push away what makes us feel threatened. Preemptive strikes individually and beyond. So this is where this idea of interconnectedness comes from. And to the extent that we can really have a sense of that, that each and every one of us is part of a network, a whole web, a spider's web of interconnecting conditions, then of course it's logical that any action from this little bit of the net <laughs> will affect the whole of the net in ever-increasing ripples. So the idea of interconnectedness comes from that for Buddhism. And that, of course, leads to... There's an emotional aspect to this because, of course, to the extent we understand our interconnectedness, our response will be of solidarity. Our response will be of compassion. Our response will be of kindness. Shanti Deva says in the Bodhicari Avatara, you know, what is so special about me that I think my suffering matters more than anybody else's suffering? What is so special about me that I think that my happiness 
is more important than anybody else's happiness. If we know we're part of a great interconnected web, then happiness is as important for every part of that web as it is for any individual. The cessation of suffering is as important for every bit of that web as it is for the individual practitioner. And compassion, of course, has all sorts of levels. Part the real uh, the real depth of Buddhist compassion comes alongside the wisdom of that inter- <laughs> interconnectedness. The wisdom of realizing that we don't have separate uh, egos, that we're not separate in that sense, but that we are all part of this web of connectedness. The, the compassion that arises from that is rather deeper than what we usually experience as compassion because it's not partial compassion. I once had a dream in which I, I was um, singing songs to the souls of the dying, as you do in your dreams. And uh, it was in the early 80s. And I was ha- in this dream, I was over Nicaragua. And I was singing songs for the... You know, there was a battle happening and these spirits were arising, souls were arising. I know it's not very Buddhistic, but, you know. I had, my, my psyche was still struggling with Catholicism. Anyway, so there was a kind of these spirits or souls or whatever were arising out of these people and I was stopping them and saying, okay, Sandinistas are Contras. And if they were Sandinistas, I let them go into wherever they were going to go. And if they were Contras, I said, sorry, you know. And I woke up really quite distressed from this dream, actually, because I realized how partial and prejudiced my own responses to the world were. And how I wasn't able to feel strength of metta or loving kindness to people who didn't agree with me. Which I know is <laughs> fairly common. But, you know, and it's not to say that I might not analyse the situation at Nicaragua and come up with an analytical response where I think, I might, you know, I might look at what's happening in Gaza at the moment. I might be able to make a decision about what I think about that. Actually, I don't know if I could. It's so complicated. But, you know, I might well feel a certain response towards one side or another of a conflict. But as a Buddhist, my task is to try to open my heart to all sides of that conflict. And whatever I might intellectually or even you know, emotionally feel about those things, my task is to be bigger than that and to actually feel solidarity to all beings and to know that all those things arise in dependence upon conditions, conditions which are so complex that actually it's very hard to unravel. And then interconnectedness as an ethical um, principle. I think we can think of the precepts in those ways. We can think of the precepts as a way of being more in connection with people or less in connection. So to the extent I break a precept, if I speak harshly, then I disconnect from the person I'm speaking to. If I can speak with kindness and with love, I'm connected immediately to the person that I'm speaking to. So I think I find that personally quite an interesting way of thinking of the precepts. It seems quite visceral to me. You know, if I'm, if I'm acting skillfully, I'm supporting life. And if I'm acting unskillfully, I'm actually separating myself from life. So Shanti Deva said, virtue is perpetually weak, while the power of vice is great and extremely dreadful. If there was no spirit of perfect awakening, what other virtue would overcome it? So there's only one thing that can overcome the powers that walk the earth, the institutionalised greed, hatred and delusion. Hatred can never be ended by hatred, as the Dhammapala tells us. 
It's one of the reasons why I left politics, actually, was because I realised at some point that every belief that I held was completely oppositional, that every stance that I took was totally oppositional. It was in, you know, this and not that. It was me and not that person. It was us and not them. And at some point, in hindsight, I didn't think this at the time, but in hindsight I realised that made me part of the problem rather than part of the solution. And I was looking for something that would not be like that when I met the Dharma. The Dharma. Sounded like somebody at a 12-step meeting, don't I? I met the Dharma. I was a sangsaraholic until I met the Dharma. Um, so the only thing that can overcome that dichotomy, that split between seeing the world in terms of good and evil, seeing the world in terms of us and them, that kind of split, which immediately does become part of the problem. The only thing that can overcome that is the awakening heart or the awakening mind, which is the bodhicitta, the, the desire to gain enlightenment, the, the real desire to put all of our being behind the virtues and principles that the Buddha taught in a way that will alleviate suffering, not only for oneself, but for the world, for all beings. And the world needs that. I think you could argue the world needs that. That is what the Buddha taught. It is what the Buddha did. Although the whole terminology of bodhicitta, the whole terminology of the bodhisattva ideal, that ideal that one can be a practitioner not only for one's sake but for all beings, although that became formulated and conceptualized in later Buddhism, it's there right from the beginning. It's right there in the Buddha's example and how he lived and how he treated people, the fact that he treated so many different people, he could, you know, he made no uh, distinction between the beggar and the king. The Buddha was able to walk all walks of life and deal with all kinds of people. He taught principles that were around that awakening, that were around breaking through that sense of separation. The awakening heart is a connected heart. The awakening heart, the awakened heart beats with the same heartbeat as every single being. There is no difference between my heartbeat and every other heartbeat on the planet. There's no difference between the individual heartbeat and the heartbeat of the planet itself. And the world needs those dharmic principles. It needs a maximization of connectedness. It needs the precepts. The Dharma, the Buddha taught that the Dharma has one taste, the taste of freedom, the taste of liberation, liberation from suffering, from delusion, liberation from a sense of disconnectedness. And we've, we know, we all in each and every one of us know what it feels like to feel disconnected. It's painful. It's horrid. And we probably all have a sense of what it's like to have a felt sense of connectedness, even if it's only with one or two other human beings. Just that sense that this person is of your tribe, that you are able to resonate, you can vibrate with that person, that you can actually really vibrate alongside that person. Imagine that extended to the whole of humanity, to the whole of sentient existence. Imagine vibrating with every being that's alive. How amazing would that feel? And how could we possibly act in ways that exploited that caused harm if we really were vibrating with the whole of sentient existence. So the Dharma teaches liberation, liberation for all. 
And the cultivation of that liberation, the wish for universal liberation, is the heart of Buddhism. It's the heart of what the Buddha taught. So you could say the Buddha teaches a liberation ethics. Anyway, all of that sounds very grand, but what can we do? You know, how can we in our daily life face the choices that we face and do what the Buddha would do? How can we really do that? How can we actually act knowing, you know, would the Buddha go to Starbucks? Would the Buddha fly? Would the Buddha, you know, how do we actually do those questions? And they're not straight and simple, simple and straightforward answers, are they? You know, how can we really get into that complexity? The simplicity of it is important. The simplicity of the principle of non-violence and the principle of interconnectedness. But there are things we can do. First of all, we can work on ourselves. We can practice the Buddha's threefold path of ethics, meditation and wisdom. Incredibly straightforward, incredibly doable, really. You know, we can really look at our ethical practices. In the Mahaparinirvana Sutra, the Buddha says, concentration fortified by ethics brings great benefits. Wisdom fortified by concentration brings great benefits. And the heart fortified by wisdom finds a great liberation. So the very basic threefold path are ethical practices, a meditation practice, and the development of wisdom, the development of an understanding of how life really is, an understanding of how things really are. We can work in our own state of mind. It's a good place to start. The Buddha certainly did that. The Buddha would certainly do that, I'm sure, if he was alive and kicking in the 21st century. He would certainly work in his own state of mind. There's no doubt we can do that. As Lao Tse said, the Chinese philosopher, if there is to be peace in the world, there must be peace in nations. For there to be peace in nations, there must be peace in the cities. For there to be peace in the cities, there must be peace between neighbours. For there to be peace between neighbours, there must be peace at home. For there to be peace at home, there must be peace in the heart of everyone. So we can certainly develop inner peace, and that will certainly Uh, contribute to outer peace renunciation the Buddha taught renunciation a simple life we can live more and more simply we can attack with love the forces of greed, hatred and delusion when we meet them we can speak out where we see injustice prejudice, racism homophobia We can speak against that. We can find the courage to do that. And one way we can find that courage is to connect with others of like mind and create community. Martin Luther King talked about the need to create a beloved community, a beloved community that would become the whole world. He talked in those terms. So our beloved community is not just me and the people that think like me and happen to you know, be on my side in the argument. But the beloved community is the whole of humanity. But within that, we can create community. And that is so important. Can I suggest, if you're interested in this, that you read a talk. Or it's in, what book is it in there? It was reproduced somewhere. Um, a talk that Sangra actually gave a very long time ago called Evolution or Extinction, a Buddhist response to current world problems. 
And it's reproduced in what is the Dharma, maybe? What is the Sangha? That's what it is. It's in what is the Sangha by Sangha, actually. And it's amazing he gives... The, the reason he suggests in that that the way to overcome current world problems is to create community and he explains why and he suggests how to do it and I do think in this world of fragmentation community is an extraordinarily important principle and that might mean residential community or it might mean a sense of community of coming together and cooperation so we can do that. We can connect to each other. We can do... There are simple acts that we can do. I've got a dead nice wee quote, but there isn't time for it, about the Buddha and recycling, about Ananda recycling. But you might have to wait for another time for that. But we can really study Buddhist principles so that we can answer the question in our heart, what would the Buddha do? And it might even be worth just taking that on board as something to do before we act. What would the Buddha do? if he were here in this situation, when we're at a junction where we're making a choice or an ethical choice, what would the Buddha do? So we can practice awareness and loving kindness. We need to do this. The world needs it more than ever. And I would like to finish with a quote from a talk given by Sangharakshita in 1983 called um, Buddhism, World Peace and Nuclear War. It was a talk given at the opening of our centre in Croydon, or of the Arts Centre in Croydon. And I don't know why Sangre actually... It was a series on non-conflict, basically. It was the first of a series of talks on non-conflict. But I don't know why he chose to talk about nuclear war at that particular point in 1983. can't think quite what would have been topical. But anyway. Hmm? Chernobyl. Well, Chernobyl would have been... I suppose it could have been... 86, yes, it wasn't Chernobyl. Anyway. Hmm? Yeah, there was obviously stuff going on, wasn't there? Trident, maybe. Yeah. I actually reread this talk whenever it was a year or two ago when they were renewing Trident, and I had a look at this talk at that point. I thought, man, this was a good talk. It was amazing, actually, some of the things that Sanger actually was saying in the 1980s. Anyway. It's worth going back to some of Banti's early stuff because there's some really radical statements in them. Anyway, he says, he's talking about nuclear war and the need for world peace, and he says, peace has become a seamless garment, and the world has either to wear the whole garment or go naked to destruction. There can no longer be any question of a scrap of peace covering one part of the world's nakedness and not another. This makes it impossible to think in merely geopolitical terms. We have also to think in geoethical, geo-humanitarian and geophilanthropic terms. Since peace is indivisible, the stark choice before us is either world peace or no peace, one world or no world. And we shall be able to achieve this peace only if we realise that humanity too is indivisible and if we consistently act upon that realisation. He says, the situation in which we find ourselves today is dangerous in the extreme, perhaps more dangerous for humanity than at any other period in history, and time is running out. Whether we shall be able to achieve world peace, we do not know, but we can, do our, we can but do our best in a situation which to a great extent is not of our own personal making. 
So I found that very inspiring, actually. When I heard it in 1983, I found it incredibly inspiring. And when I reread it, I found it very inspiring. And Banti's saying in 1983, it's a crucial and dangerous situation. Well, frankly, I don't think it's any better 25 years later. If anything, I think it's possibly worse. So I think what he's saying then still holds, and even more so, that we need a full sense of the indivisibility of humanity. And that real sense of that would break through so many of the world's problems. And of course, we can only start at home. We can only start where we can start. We can only act as the Buddha would act, speak as the Buddha would speak, relate as the Buddha would relate in our immediate spheres of influence. But we can trust that they're ever widening ripples and that to the extent we do bring that into the world, it will have an effect. And of course, this isn't just difficult. It's possibly impossible. It's maybe impossible. But I don't think that means we shouldn't try. It's like all the arguments about global warming. Some people say it's inevitable, so why bother? Well, perhaps it's inevitable, but I still think it's worth the bother, you know, etc., etc. And this reminds me of a piece of graffiti from May 1968, when some of you probably weren't, were very young, and some of us weren't. So in 1968, there was a piece of graffiti on a wall which said, "Be, be realistic, demand the impossible. So that's what we can do. We can demand of ourselves the impossible. We can demand it of our community and of the world. And we can make the impossible possible by really learning the principles that help us to act, really working in our mental states so that we can act with wisdom, a heart full of wisdom, and act as the Buddha would act, do what the Buddha would do in this troubled world of the 21st century. Thank you very much. <laughs>